About six weeks ago, I approached tonight's speaker to explore the possibility of a discussion at our February event to talk about, through his long, successful and colorful career as a practitioner of both foreign policy and domestic politics, the tension between these two forces in our country. Little did we know that it would come into focus so surrendificiously. Ian Cortlang is a name known to many. Indeed, it was quite a while after I met Court, as he is known, that I came to understand his celebrity status. I would finish having a coffee with him somewhere either in Perth or Canberra, and somebody would come up to me after his leaving and say, was that not Cotlang? So it was so, and so it is. I won't repeat his bio in, fill, in full, which was sent out with the promotional material for this event, except to underline the unique traje trajectory of his career. Straight out of university to Vietnam, where he served with distinction, then in min military intelligence in Canberra, back to university, and a mature age graduate place in the then Department of Foreign Affairs. Diplomatic postings to Sri Lanka, Tanzania slash Zambia, the OECD mission in Paris, then branching out in business in Africa, running as a candidate in the New South Wales state elections, working closely with Nick Greiner as campaign manager, then chief of staff, then director general of the Department of State Development in New South Wales, switching back to the federal sphere as the chief of staff to Andrew Peacock, then starting his long career as a public policy, political and strategic consultant, which he is still doing and which took him to Sydney this past week. Court, I'll start with the first question. Why Vietnam? And what did that experience on the ground and subsequently your career in military intelligence tell you about Australia and its role in the region at that time? How important were domestic considerations as to how Australia ended its involvement in that conflict as well? Well, good, good evening, Brendan, and good evening, uh, audience. Um, I hope I haven't sort of um, disorganised your week, and but you'll be able to go back to the university club fairly soon. Why Vietnam? Vietnam, because I won the lottery. Uh, the lottery was really being called up in national service. And when I was sort of 21, 22, when they introduced the, um, that form of conscription, I was called up in the first ballot. I'd already been sort of commissioned in the citizens and military forces, which we now call the Army Reserve. So instead of just opting for a two-year career, I decided to take a, a five-year short service commission, which I applied for. So I went to Vietnam with an infantry battalion, uh, not serving in, in the front line, serving more in strategy and logistics. And that allowed me to uh, have a perspective on Vietnam, which guys who were in the, in the field the whole time really didn't have. Foreign policy, I mean, when we, were, when we were recruited and we went to Vietnam, we weren't thinking foreign policy. We very, very narrowly were thinking 
that's what we were supposed to do. That's where the government had asked us to go. But while I was in Vietnam, I was lucky enough to be a liaison officer on many occasions with the joining forces around us, the United States, Thais, uh, ROK, Korea. And interfacing with them, you could then see where we fitted in. And we were a very, very small patch in a major US play. We had one little small province that we looked after. Uh, but when I went to uh, Saigon, as it then was, or Long Bin on, uh, for either a liaison or exchange uh, visits, I just saw how tiny we were in that. Um, I think uh, for me, the thing that affected me most in terms of my future career, yes, it was being in the battalion, but it was when, when we went on a liaison uh, to a French plantation owners uh, club. And there, in that particular environment, there were diplomats. I'd never met a diplomat before. You know, I'm a boy from Queensland, and you know, I'd be lucky to have met anybody like that at all. And there was an Italian uh, ambassador. There was a Swedish uh, ambassador. And as I sat there that day, when we were ostensibly there for intelligence gathering, but actually it was more swimming and playing tennis, but I thought, you know, I, I like this. And uh, I just parked it in the back of my mind. And when a friend of mine who was in the, an intelligence officer said, you know, why are you in infantry? I said, well, I am because that's what I got called up into. Uh, he said, you should consider intelligence. So I did a core transfer uh, whilst I was in Vietnam to intelligence. And that really affected my career going forward because I got a posting as soon as I got back to Canberra. So we were narrowly looking at the Vietnam play. We weren't looking at it in terms of foreign policy. We knew we had to do a specific thing in a specific area. And I think that when we reflected, probably as we left, not while we were there, we just really did see ourselves as a small part of an American play. And, and so when, when, when the war was ending, um, I guess you could see at the time in the early, I guess you, your, your period in military intelligence, uh, by the time you got back to, to Canberra, um, Whitlam had been elected uh, uh, and, and, and you saw, I guess, a rethink or a, a, a more, I guess, uh, reflective view of what we were doing there. And, and how did you see that play out? I, I guess coming to yeah. the theme of our tonight's conversation, which is the intersection yeah. of foreign policy well, and domestic policy. It interests me a lot because uh, the night of the election, I had a group of people around, as you do in Canberra, as you know, Brendan, and uh, I decided to sort of educate my conservative friends into what was coming up with there being a sort of a, the first Labor government for quite some time. So I made the meal not the normal sort of stuff that we you have, but I had all Hungarian food, so they got used to socialism. On the Monday, I got to work very early, and I was still a military officer, and one of my Monday tasks was always to brief the chiefs of the general staff or the top generals and brigadiers about what was going on in Vietnam. I got in very early that day, about 4 o'clock. We went through our normal sort of signals intelligence and looked at that, and my sergeant who worked for me, I... I said, Des, I want, to, I want you to sort of change the slides this morning. He said, what are you talking about, boss? And I said, right, I'll tell you. 
So anyway, we roll the movie forward to about nine o'clock on that first day after Whitlam was elected. I think it was it would have on the second, so it would have been sort of the third or the fourth of uh, the fourth of of December that year. And I'm standing up there in, in front of um, of the, all these sort of generals and what have you, and it's dark, and they're out there, and I could just see them sort of glistening. And I started off by saying, "Well, friendly forces today uh, made major incursions, moving south into X, Y, and Z." What I'd got um, my sergeant to do was to change all the slides. So North Vietnam had been in red beforehand. I'd put them in blue, and uh, the South Vietnamese had been in blue. Had had been in red. So I just swapped them all around. So suddenly there was this booming voice coming from out of out of the darkness saying, "Thank you, Captain Courtlang. That will be all." So I could, you know, and obviously I got into a bit of trouble for that. But you could see that very next day there it was. We were changing, obviously not to the extent that I was saying, because I was really just making a point, and I was beginning to get a bit sick of the army at that stage. So I didn't really mind what what, what was going to happen to me. But you could see at that time the change, and with Whitlam coming in and the sort of excitement that he created of sort of bringing foreign policy into the sort of the, into the sort of the twentieth century, as a, as opposed to where it was under McMahon, people like that. Even though I was uh, an army officer, I was at that stage. I'd transferred. I had sort of moved from being just military intelligence into the into the civilian side. So I was working in the office of current intelligence, where we produced produced a an intelligence newspaper every morning for cabinet, prime minister, and cabinet. And it was on their sort of desk by eight o'clock. My boss then at that stage was a guy Gordon Upton, who was a foreign affairs officer, and he could see that I quite liked this side of it and not just the military bit. And uh, so he convinced me and talked to me about applying for the Department of Foreign Affairs. But it was from that excitement of that Whitlam area, the excitement that foreign policy was being discussed about. I mean, I could hardly even spell foreign policy when I, when I first joined the army, but it suddenly it, it came to me as something that I was really was going to focus on and look at. And... Uh, it stay it stayed that way, uh, and 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 has endured to now. But it was really all that that enormous excitement uh, of Whitlam coming in. So, so you 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 go on to university, um, upskill yourself, yeah, join foreign affairs as a graduate. Um, again, you know, this by this time, you know, Whitlam's in in government for a couple of years. His ideas of foreign policy are evolving in some ways. Um, in some ways, he wants to go after his policy priorities, which he had been mulling about for a few years. Um, you go on your first posting. It's to Sri Lanka, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yes. How do you see um, this Whitlam era foreign policy play out and whether there were any kind of domestic battles yeah. on it as well? Well, I... The very interesting thing about it was when I got to the post, of course, as a, as a third sec, as you know, Brendan, you're sort of bottom of the totem pole. So I was getting pretty average work. Uh, then we had a change of first sec, and the new the new first sec that came in was from the first person from the from the consular admin stream. His wife was a very imperious sort of borough memsab who had been a head of mission sec, and she called me aside after about a week after they arrived and spoke to me quite sternly about, 
I don't want you to undermine my husband because he comes from another area. So he and I, you know, he didn't have the same problem. And I had a chat to him and I said, look, why don't we just split up some of this space on, on the uh, policy side? But I'd really like to keep the non-aligned summit uh, lobbying that we're doing, if I can have that as my own. He said, sure. So he yielded that to me. Because what we'd done in that time, uh, you know, the non-aligned summit conference was really like Davos for social democrats and dictators and everybody wanted to be in it. And part of, you know, Whitlam was to just sort of touch them by having observer status, not for us to go to that extent, but to demonstrate that we weren't locked in with the British, to demonstrate that we could have our own stream of thought, that we could sit with people who were further left than us, but we could accommodate some of their ideas. And uh, I got I got highly, in, highly involved in that. Um, and to me, of course, it was the biggest demonstration to me of the effect of domestic policy on foreign policy because, you know, come 11th of November that year and out goes... Um, out goes Whitlam, in comes Fraser, and I've been main, main, madly active in this space for so long. And on Monday morning, all the pals that I used to talk to in, in the Yugoslav embassy and stuff like that and the, minist- and the ministry, suddenly we had to say we had absolutely no interest whatsoever in achieving observer status at, at, at the non-aligned summit. So there you have you know, a huge campaign, a bit like, <clears throat> excuse me, our running somebody for... The Security Council was an enormous campaign around the world to get observer status, and we dumped it just like that on the Monday morning. Luckily, well, so that's that's a very brutal switch. Um, and did in in the lead up? Okay, obviously there wasn't an election uh, that brought uh, Malcolm yes. Fraser into the prime ministership. But did you did we have did, did Fraser have a kind of foreign policy manifesto? that, you know, in the lead up to what would have been sort of a, say, an early 1976 election that was being planned, or was it a decision you think they got into government and said, look, this is nonsense, why are we doing this? Yeah, well, ha- well having lived and breathed the Liberal Party quite a lot over the last 30 years, they must have been having a heart attack to think that they'd, 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 act- they'd sort of inherited this type of policy. It was anathema to them you know, to have people like Gaddafi as, as your best mate and uh, Tito, who was at, at the summit. Well, I think he was at the summit. He, I, I think he probably died and they had some effigy there being moved around. It was interesting there was, though, an undercurrent in, in foreign affairs who really wanted to have this information and we weren't sort of allowed to go along again to, and we, and we weren't, hadn't achieved observer status. So out of the blue one day I, I got notice from Canberra that I'd been... Uh, accredited as, a, as an Australian journalist to attend the conference. So I attended the conference as a representative of a, of a regional Australian newspaper, presumably, and allowed me to go along then to do all the reporting we would have done had we done it as an observer. So within the, within the bowels of foreign affairs that then, there, then was, there was still a keen interest in monitoring this you know, very serious and very important movement. But I did it as a journalist had to have my, um, my presumed filing back to Australia checked by the North Korean heavy people who used to come around the, around the press area and sort of tell us what we should be writing. So that was, that was an interesting experience. But my, my posting ended uh, in, in Colombo. 
month after the non-aligned summit conference. I attended it, but as a journal. Yeah, I mean that that's uh, that's a harkening back also in time, and that's a, a good anecdote to to see how the world has changed. I mean, the non-aligned movement, you know, sort of petered out, you know, yeah. a slow death. It still exists in in name, but um, um, you know, it also shows you know the arc of of history in in these uh, I guess in these in these coalitions of forces. Um, but you know, it's interesting to hear how how Australia had toyed with it, uh, and um, and then that changed so abruptly with with a change of government. I think it's a great example of how um, a change of government in in Canberra can can really impact on on um, how we see the world. Well, it's the ultimate 180 degrees when you have an election and you lose it, and it's out the window. I mean, I think within foreign affairs, or people who study foreign affairs, and we all love it, uh, the, the that there's a concept that something's living out there at a level beyond sort of just domestic politics and it sits out on its own. Well, it, actually, it's, it's rooted back to the thoughts and, 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 and the directions and the priorities of politicians. And a lot of those politicians aren't super clever and as sure as sugar aren't super interested in, in foreign policy, but it's just there. It's not stuck forever. It can move very quickly. And that to me was just... You wouldn't believe it because you know, I used to play tennis with these guys deliberately because I had to sort of foster people in that space. And, you know, come Monday, they said, I beg your pardon. And it was just all over. It's amazing. Great. Um, the next phase of your career, if I'm correct, takes you, I'm not sure that you returned to Canberra or not, but it takes you to, to Africa. Um, now, some would argue it's today the forgotten backwater of Australian foreign policy. Um, but it was certainly not quite the case in the mid uh, to late 1970s. As a as a, a person who has lived and worked in the continent, it's sad to see. But but I, I for me, it's quite hard to to imagine how important Africa was in that period, um, particularly under the leadership of uh, Malcolm Fraser and how how much he was engaged. Um, how did you see that play out, um, that, that kind of domestic push and, and the role of Malcolm Fraser in your work in Africa? Well, it's, it, it was very interesting because in those days you used to fly into Dar es Salaam, which was my posting, a sensible, ostensible posting, via Athens. I got to Athens and I, there was a message for me at the hotel uh, not, to, not to go straight down to Dar, but to go to London. I thought, oh, wow, I don't mind. I've never been to London in my life. So I've never been to Europe in my life. So I hopped on the plane, went to London and went to the High Commission. And there I was briefed um, not just by a, a Foreign Affairs First Assistant Secretary, but, but also a, a, a PMNC First Assistant Secretary about what my real role was going to be in that area. And that was to be posted to Dar es Salaam, work in the, on the aid policy side, but my real interest and my real job was to establish uh, a logistics base, uh, offices, houses uh, for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. And that really quite surprised me because you imagine you hop on a plane, you think you're going to Dar and well, so what. And suddenly I'm spending 80% uh, of my time from then on living in Lusaka. And in Lusaka I was um, representing... Uh, the government at, at sort of ministerial level as it impacted with Chogham. I was meeting the people who were setting up 
all the various things for the heads of heads of state and government that were coming. But it was a PMNC initiative. It was very much, yes, foreign affairs was there. And it even became more obvious when uh, Andrew Peacock, who'd done a sort of a swing through Africa and in Tanzania before he came to Lusaka, through the whole period of the, of the Chogham Conference, he was very much not needed in the main room. I'd acquired three houses, uh, one very big one for him. That was my house when I used to go up there. And so he, arri he arrived there and but the major meetings and, and where was things happening? And we had to keep him amused by, by playing tennis with the then Canadian Prime Minister's wife, Maureen McTeer. So he played a lot of tennis, but the action wasn't really where he was. And where the action was was, in fact, at breakfast meetings with, with Malcolm Fraser. So I used to arrive at... Mullingushi village where all the heads of state were about half past six in the morning and I'd get there and check things out because Fraser was having a series of breakfasts with, the non with all the frontline state leaders and the first day was with Julius Nairi. So I get there on time, a bit early and about 10 to, six, 10 to 7 there's no cook. I thought, my goodness. And I'm so looking at my watch and wondering, and then Mrs. Fraser came out and she says, oh, morning Ian. I said, morning, Mrs. Fraser. She says, oh, lovely day. I said, I'm not so sure about that. There's no cook for the breakfast with Nairi. She says, oh, well, that's no problem, in a sort of Western District voice. And she says, uh, I'll do the eggs and, and you make the toast. <laughs> and about 20 minutes later, the cook did arrive. He'd slept in. Nairi was a bit late and it went ahead. But every morning... Uh, for all of that conference, he had a different person along. And what they were doing was, was going through the basis of the communique uh, that they were, which they were producing. Yes, there were plenary sessions, but a lot of it was being drafted over those scrambled egg meetings. And so as just not to clarify, this, this meeting, this communique, it's very, was very historical. Yes. Um, ended up being very historical and was very historical around... Um, the future of Zimbabwe, if I'm not mistaken. So I'll let you continue, of course. So it was a very sensitive issue, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was. Oh, no, um, it was an enormously sensitive issue. But what Fraser had in mind, and to your point about what role he was playing, he was ahead of his country, he was ahead of his party, he was, a, he was ahead of, 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 of the Department of Foreign Affairs. He had in his mind that he, you know, this sort of anti-racist, uh, equalization thing. You know, Thatcher was happy to uh, sort of pander to the sort of puppet government under Satoli that had been been appointed. As Fraser wanted to damage all that, set up an arrangement for elections to be there. And he on the Saturday um, uh, before the thing ended on the on the Monday, he leaked. <clears throat> excuse me, the communicator. And uh, it came out on, then on the you know, early Sunday morning and he briefed the Australian journos first about what was in the communique. And it just all went nuts, of course. We'd organised a big barbecue at this big house of Andrew Peacock's. Um, and uh, everybody turned up and there's this big noise going around and chatter, chatter, chatter. And then along comes Thatcher uh, with her husband and Lord Carrington in tow and she was furious talks to the Secretary-General, grabs him, 
and suddenly they come to me and say, how many chairs have you got? And I said, oh, I think we've got about, I don't know, 30. Right. So I had to set up a plenary session of the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in the, in the dining room and, and, and the lounge room of this house where they ratified in a plenary session there what had been leaked by Fraser. So it was uh, then uh, Thatcher stormed out straight away after the plenary session, didn't even get to the dessert. And that sealed the pathway for for the elections. Uh, yeah. elections and, and then that's right. We know, and and it it all flowed on from that. But she was quite happy to sort of keep it, sort of. Oh yes, we'll get to that. Whereas in fact, uh, Fraser very much was was again was ahead of it, and he was ahead of, you know, Peacock was sort of talking to him in front of me about, you know, Malcolm, this is going too far and they're ringing back their branches in Australia. And he said, oh, I know the Peacock's saying if, if the branches here were going this far, you know, we're, we're going to lose pre-selection. So Peacock, who was seen in context as being sort of a small L liberal and, and a leader in this space, in fact, with miles behind the presumed conservative Fraser. So, so, so just on that point, if I could delve a bit deeper. So you're saying it was going down to the political party branch level yeah. That that policy, yeah. and they were they can I say they were advocating they were they were giving feedback in real time almost during during the during that week, Andrew was sort of um, you know pretty well not involved. I think I think it's nothing really unusual about that, as we all know that it's, it's a prime ministers and heads of government heads of states gig. It's not a foreign ministers gig. They shouldn't go, but anyway, he was around, and he's an activist in in party terms and you see where he was and where he eventually would be in terms of politics 79 80 81 83 you know and but he's feeding back to malcolm that you know mate you're just going too far because you know just like you're seeing now in new south wales politics branch politics and pre-selections are pretty important things for the liberal party and they was being jeopardized by you know you can imagine you know we are going to do this and we're going to put in a terrorist out of the scrub, Mugabe, and we're going to anoint him as prime minister. I mean, drive people nuts. And for the conservatives within the Liberal Party, of course, that would give them all the all the ammunition they would need not to pre-select the people. So you've got this thing going on every evening at, you know, around about six or something other they'd be having a dialogue. And I wasn't in, you know, I'd only pick up occasional bits and pieces, but you could see what, what was happening. And this is pre-mobile phone, so it's all on phones, phones. And we had secure phones uh, that had been all set up in, in both, you know, obviously in Fraser's uh, villa and also in An- Andrew Peacock's house. And so they're talking, but they're not necessarily just talking about foreign policy issues. They're talking about party policy issues. Well, and 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 so this is this is a real incredible example of of a prime minister imprinting his personal view on on the country's foreign policy. And um, firstly, why was you know why was Fraser so out in front on this issue? Um, and you know, obviously, there's been many, there's been many, there's a lot of ink has been spilled. But I'd love to hear you know your your view. You were there, you know, in, in close quarters. Well, my my latter life and the last sort of thirty years have been really running politicians and dealing with politicians. He was the first guy I dealt with, and I hadn't didn't know the concept of of being a minder, but PMC had made me his minder. And one of the jobs I had to do was to take him to the plenary session. And I was briefed by the people within PMC and say, you've got to really do this in great detail. 
you've got to you've got to brief him. You're going to arrive here. You're going to turn left. You're going to turn right. On the right hand side will be such and such a person. On the left there'll be so and so. You're going to sit here and do that. And we even did it in diagrammatic phrase. Now little sketches. I quite like doing little stick sketches, and we'd sketch to him where he was going. To me, to me, a lot of it was that he's a very tall man, and he's quite, quite awkward within himself up close like that and he needs reassurance so in the end after about day one he knew that if i said turn left turn right sit down which i've been doing for people for the next for the last 40 years he felt better about it i there's some apocryphal maybe stories that when he was in oxford the only sort of pals he could have were, were people from africa because i said malcolm was you no know, you wouldn't want to be stuck on a desert island with him he's not wasn't very sort of funny, communicative, laughing jokes. I mean, we had, there was none of that. I mean, with Mrs. Fraser, yes, but not with him, nothing. So I suspect he, he found, felt a lot of rapport with people from Africa when he was in Oxford, and he just continued it on. And, and I think there's a lot of that in that patrician people around the world that they look as though they'd have a conservative policy, but deep down, you know, they're very progressive in that space. And as Malcolm, uh, as he evolved when he came back and he left politics, I mean, he was, he was so far left it wasn't funny in the eyes of the, of the Liberal Party. But I saw then that he was moving along. He wasn't consciously taking along Goff's ideas, but as he and Goff became friends later on, he was extending it, in fact, even going further. And, and even Hawke recognised that within it. But I, I could see that he was, this was his gig, this is what he was going to achieve out of this particular meeting. And I think uh, he had a, a genuine love and understanding and empathy uh, with the people of Africa. And, and, and it's, it's, it's in a way, it's, it's quite a unique example because we haven't seen it sort of in too many occasions. I mean, we saw it a little bit um, with, with Hawk after Tiananmen Square, um, mm. you know, sort of being very impacted by it and, and 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 the concessions he gave to the Chinese students that were here in Australia at the time, you know, very publicly. But in a kind of a sustained strategic way, it's more a team of people. I mean, during the Hawke Keating years, obviously they were quite adventurous and, and innovative in foreign policy, but they did it, it, it wasn't Hawke on his own on APEC or, or Gareth on his own mm -hmm. on on Cambodia or, you know, it was, it was, you know, sort of, a, it was almost a bottom up, you know, public policy coming from the department, developing the policy and executing in a classic sense. Yeah. But to me, looking back and hearing your story on this, this seemed to be really yeah, well, very much. And I, PM and C were in on the joke because Sir Geoffrey Yeen was there, the head of the department. And he obviously was accessing the prime minister a lot, but he was accessing it to, to more facilitate this than other things. So there, there was a lot of him and there wasn't a lot of foreign affairs there at all. So they were, they were in on the joke. And when I went to London that time, you know, it was again, you know, this was a PMC briefing to this very young person who was about to go off and do this stuff. And you know, I was sufficiently mature and I'd come out of the army and I knew how to do logistics and I could organize all that stuff that had to be done. But there was this other element of then, and you're basically the minder, and that then changed my whole life. I've been a minder for for ego-driven people ever since. So thank you, Malcolm. <laughs> which is a which is which is a which is a good segue 
to to my next question. Um, you spent some time in Paris um, at the OECD mission. Uh, you go and you know you've told me before about your career, you know, as a business person running your own business and consultancy in Africa. But I, I would like to jump to the point where you 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 know you 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 take yourself from this foreign affairs background uh, to working within a political system, uh, starting off in the state and in the federal spheres. Um, how did this occur and, and, and how did the training that you've had, how did life before that, whether military or foreign affairs, prepare you for this bullpit of uh, domestic politics? Well, again, it didn't occur in an obvious way. When I, when I sort of left foreign affairs came and came back to Australia after a year and a bit running my business in, in, in Africa, which was really monetizing or caught, uh, um, foreign affairs diplomacy, I came back to Australia and I came to Sydney and I'd never been to Sydney in my life apart from catching a, a ferry to Manly when I was seven. Uh, and I met a mate who was in executive search. So he was, and he said, oh, you know, you'll be quite good with business people. You can talk them into where, what businesses they need to go to. Anyway, after about four months, the boss of this organisation said, mate, you've really got to get yourself a network because you don't know anybody in this town. And he said, go and join Rotary, interact, the Liberal Party, you know, just do something. So I chose the Liberal Party. So I, I chose the Liberal Party with nothing to do with their policy because my policy my policy has always been, you know, left liberal, but certainly not where they were at that particular stage to get a network. So I joined the Liberal Party and uh, was lucky to move quite quickly through particular positions and a mate of mine who was an was a ex-diplomat said to me, go, go and run, why did you go and run for a seat? I said, why do I want to do that? He said, well, because then you'll get to meet everybody or the business people who are pre-selectors and you really, no, I was, I'd fronted with him, with him why, why I was doing it. And so I, I ran for pre-selection really to get a business network because I could go and talk to the guy who was the head of Lee Martin who happened to be a Liberal Party guy, presumably about my pre-selection for the state, to the seat of Ride, whereas in fact it was more how could we get him and pick up his business later on. So that's how I got into politics. I didn't get into politics because I suddenly had an epiphany that I wanted to, uh, you know, be a deaconite or something like that. I, I wanted to sort of hit my budget. About I ran for the seat. I picked a seat that was impossible to win unless the government, unless the opposition won, and uh, came second. And that was terrific. I was probably the happiest person in the room. That would get priests. I didn't win that night, but I my business thing was going quite well. And then I got a ring on the phone about eighteen months later from Nick Griner, who I'd worked with on that campaign. He was the still you know, the, the young leader of the opposition. He said, "My you know private secretary is." is leaving me to go and live in San Fran, uh, would you like the job? And I said, well, is there any travel? And he said, no. I said, fantastic, because I've been travelling enormously with my, my business. So I became his private secretary, which I quickly changed to principal private secretary, because I think that's, I thought that sounded better. <laughs> uh, I did, you know, maybe from yes minister, does PPS sound better than private secretary? So anyway, I, I took that position and but within about a, a, a month I could see that we were going to get nowhere because the Liberal Party at that stage had hadn't won I they'd run in 18 elections they'd lost a lot of them across state and federal 
and uh, they couldn't run run a country. They couldn't even run a bath at that stage. So I moved out of policy and went entirely into logistics of and became basically the campaign manager. It's normally run by somebody in the Liberal Party headquarters, but we took it and ran it out of Griner's office. So by doing that, by the dint of their not having that capacity, I jumped in and took that capacity and and became the campaign ma- campaign manager, much to you know the annoyance of the of the official Liberal Party at that particular stage. But you know we won in nineteen eighty eight, and then I went from being sort of you know, Nick's chief of staff. I ran the transition appointments office, and then. I reverted back to what I'd been once upon a time, a uh, policy wonk and, and became the Director General of the Department of State Development. So can I, then if I put together, so that, so if I can trace this back again, so your military background, logistics, um, and, then, and then foreign affairs, the kind of policy, deep policy. Um, can I venture to say, Political nows? Did you get that from from foreign affairs, or is I, that something you? Yeah, I think. Well, I think what you get from foreign affairs, you have the ability to keep your own self image, while you lower that ego, and serve other people. Now, a lot of people think that you know foreign affairs and diplomats are quiet, sort of shrinking people. They're not at all. They just they just choose to promote other people without losing any of their own dignity at all. And I. I learned that in foreign affairs. And when you're dealing with sort of politicians, and I had William Knox, you know, who was sort of lead the opposition in Queensland in 86, explained to me that a lot of people that get into politics are the people like they join uh, theatre, little theatre groups, and they really want to just hand out tickets and paint, paint, paint the flats behind the, behind the screen. And one day, the screen, the, the curtains go back and suddenly there's an audience in front and they turn around, they start to perform. But you've got to remember that a lot of those people are, are, are quite fragile people. And, but you can help them and you can grow them. And I, I enjoy that. Sure, I can jump in front of a camera, but I've chosen not to do that, but to work with people and help build them. And I think foreign gives you that because every person, doesn't matter how senior he is in foreign affairs, gets up at 1am in the morning to meet the foreign minister when he, she comes through and takes them down the steps and takes them to the car. Do they really want to do that? But does it, does it hurt their ego? It doesn't hurt the ego at all because it's an empathetic thing to do. So now I've really, that's what I learned in foreign affairs and that particular skill set I've, I've taken into politics. Fantastic. Um, so we, 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 you, you were talking earlier when, when, before I interrupted with the question, was your time in then back in Canberra as a, as a policy wonk, uh, working, I guess you, you're now working in Canberra, you've left the New South Wales system. Um, why that move? You, you were successful uh, in New South Wales and um, why Canberra um, again? I was in Canberra again because I was one of the sort of people with some mathematical skill that put together put together the uh, coup against John Howard. Um, it's pretty naughty. I mean, I suppose I was the Director General of the Department of State Development. And I'm madly doing the math over a two-month period working for Peacock, 
people uh, to roll John Howard. And that's what happened. And I resigned on the Wednesday after uh, May the 9th was when uh, Howard was beaten by Peacock. I resigned the next day and then there was a bit of toing and froing and talk of money and things being arranged between John Elliott and Peacock and suddenly, surprise, surprise, I end up on the Friday as Peacock's chief of staff. That's how I got back to Canberra. I got back to Canberra because I involved myself uh, in a political process which is not sustainable as being a you know, departmental head that you're sort of doing the numbers against the the leader of the opposition of, of a party which your premier is, is of that party. Uh, but I did and uh, that got me back there with, with, with Andrew Peacock. Um, Peacock and I had a, a, an amazing relationship prior to his winning it because you, you're sort of like a McKinsey's consultant. They listen, they listen, they do what you say. But as soon as I became his chief of staff, I was more like the general manager of the steel division and suddenly, you know, if the letters weren't going out on time, you get, you get chipped. So we had, you know, we had a short period of time. Andrew Peacock, he, even up until his deathbed, was said that he was drafted into, into uh, running against uh, Howard. Not true, but he, as soon as it got problematical, he sort of distanced himself from everybody who would, who would do, run that coup for him to get him in. And, of course, I was one of the early casualties of that. Tony Eagleton's got a long memory. So that's how so I got in, And in that period, you know, fascinating, again, another, another kind of, you know, amazing anecdote in your, in your long career. But get it to, getting back to the theme of, of today's discussion, yes. tonight's discussion, in, in that time when you were um, playing in Canberra again, um, either you know when you were there or around that time, um, I guess you had an opposition that had been in opposition for a long time. You had a very strong uh, government in place, the Hawk, uh, Keating um, partnership. And where did foreign policy feature? Uh, and, well, and did you see how it, it, it come up in, in any way? In my time with Peacock, we were focused, you know, 100% on, on matters domestic to win. There was no chance of there being a sort of a khaki election. It had to be uh, seat by seat. Uh, Andrew appealing more on a, on, a, on a domestic basis, not a foreign. It wasn't a foreign policy time uh, when I was there to, to advance that. So I really just focused on uh, what we could do on sort of politics at, at the lower level, policy at, at a level where we would convince people seat by seat, electorate by electorate to, uh, to vote for the Liberal Party. It was not, it was not writ large at all. And, uh, and when you have a look at it, I mean, foreign policy didn't really impact sort of changes of, changes of government uh, for quite some time. And it certainly didn't at, at, at that period of time. You know, we used to look at the policy stuff every day and every week and we'd analyse it and we're writing the stuff. But it wasn't jumping up like let's let's make an initiative in Africa and that's going to be great for us. No, because everything was through the prism of how do we get elected. So I th- I, think, I think in opposition you suspend that you go bipartisan because you just really want to focus on domestic. And and that was the point I was about to say. Like you know there was there was it was a period where it was it was you know there was there was there was not 
a sliver of difference between the opposition and 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 the government in in, in when it came to foreign policy if anything uh, if my memory is right, where you had contestation on foreign policy, it was pr- probably more within the, the Labour Party at the time between the, exactly. the actions, you know, you, you're on, on, say, on East Timor or on Palestine, on, you know, those if issues you were practiced be, within yeah. Labour Party, but not within Labour and Liberal. Never. If, if you want to sit down and have, a, if you have to go to be shipwrecked and be on an island and you want to talk foreign policy, get shipwrecked with Labour Party people, not with Liberals. Uh, it's not deeply, not deeply ingrained in their soul. And now and I know them and Maurice Payne is, is, is a good foreign minister and Julie Bishop was. And, but that's one person out of 61. The rest of them aren't, aren't really into that. And they don't have factional fights about foreign policy uh, at, at the branch level like um, the Labor Party does. The Liberal Party is a lot more pragmatic and, you know, they're about uh, security, they're, 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 they're about running the economy uh, and things of that nature. And they don't, they're not, we're pro-Palestine or we're pro-Israel. That's not a big thing, no, unlike, say, the Democrats in, in the United States. They're not like that at all. Some are, so, but not many. So, so- from my from my memory of that period, I was I was at university when um, when John Howard had that famous uh, intervention on uh, the level of Asian migration, and I'm assuming you had a bit of a ringside view on that. Maybe maybe you can share yeah. some some thoughts on that. Yeah, well, Howard um, Howard Griner had a sort of a a bad sort of relationship, the two groups running them. So, so we used to watch Howard very closely. Uh, we'd, won, we'd won in March 1988. Um, we're, doing, we're doing fine. Howard's sort of nowhere's really had a very bad 87 campaign. But he goes off to, uh, goes off to London in, in, in April of 88, meets Thatcher and Thatcher says, you know, you've got to stiffen, John. You know, must no turning. Keep going. So he pops on a plane, comes back gets to Perth in, in, in July after seeing her and launches this one Australia policy. Then he gets over to uh, John Laws and uh, later, later on that day, and he miss, we'd say now he misspoke, and he misspoke about Asian immigration. Now, today you would sort of walk it back again within 24 hours. He didn't walk it back. He kept deepening it and deepening it and deepening it until he answers a question as, oh, yeah, I suppose we might consider reducing Asian migration. Well, you can imagine what you feel like when you're in Singapore and, and you're in Malaysia and uh, you don't think this is a really great thing and has Australia gone back to white Australia policy. But the, for Howard's future, it, it, it did, did Elliot's mind in that he went that quite that far and certainly Peacock later on. So by his basically changing our foreign policy vis-a-vis immigration, vis-a-vis perception of where we are on race, um, by his doing that for for domestic reasons, he really impacts against foreign policy. And eventually, Elliot tried, you know, assembled a team to run a coup, and it didn't didn't get up in the end. And then he handed the baton to Andrew Peacock in February of '88, and then it, Andrew ran it. But it came about from how do I exploit foreign policy to help me win seats in Australia by being Mr. Tough Man rather than being 
suburban solicitor. Which and and so are you saying that that it was one of the reasons that that motivated Elliot and then subsequently Peacock that that sort of position yeah that that Howard took on Asian immigration I'm sure it wasn't the only one but it oh no but it was it was one well you know people forget that Elliot was younger than Peacock and Howard Elliot was only 45 when he became president of the party and when he was considering an 88 running against uh running against Howard but that was like the final straw and there was a caucusing at that stage and people ringing people and getting groups together and talking about it. And some were Peacock people and some were a, a much smaller group of Elliot people. But it was on and it was, and it was, and it was that, uh, you know, Howard going strong on that for really domestic reasons, putting in jeopardy everything we'd put together for years and years through Colombo plans and things of that nature. And of course, he repeated it later on. You know, we will say we will decide who comes to our country. Yeah. Uh, and he wins an election on with that slogan several yeah. years later. But he will come back to that. But but I I I'm, that's a new factoid for me. The 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 fact that that influence of you know obviously he wasn't thinking of Australia's foreign policy. He was doing it for domestic for, uh, domestic reasons. But but had was quite impactful in our image and in Australia's, you know, Absolutely. today you would call it soft power or ability to influence things in our region, be accepted mm. uh, on the, in the table and the like. But, um, and, and so to, to see that play out as, as a influential issue in how the party then reacts is quite interesting. Yeah. Well, it was, it was, it's funny, you know, if, if, if Howard hadn't been rolled in, in, uh, 1989, he never would have been prime minister. But by him then being put on the bench and not leaving, because you know, what do you do if you're a suburban solicitor? You, you know, go back to running a practice again? And I don't think so. So he hangs around and then you have Peacock gives up, then Houston gets in and then you get Downer implodes, then you get Howard. And Howard by then has sort of reconstructed himself and he goes on and has a very successful 11 years as prime minister. So he was, it was lucky that he went at that particular stage and he went away and licked his wounds and rebuilt himself. And uh, in Liberal Party terms, he's the second best one after um, Menzies. So he's never rung any of us up and thanked us for that. But anyway, but, um, yeah, we think that. <laughs> the, the, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, how Howard then used that same language uh, later on. And I think you're referring to, you know, what is now colloquially known as the temper election um so i, I guess as before we come then and there's a there's a question uh, by an audience member in, in terms of the the national security khaki election environment that we are in yes. um especially after the last couple of weeks that were that parliament set but do, do you see that a lot of people see that as a seminal moment where you know how Temper, September 11, and how it played, and and sort of the breaching of the, the bipartisanship uh, yeah. to exploit that to um, to win in a narrow, very narrow electoral contest. Yeah, well, it's not the first time it happened because if you roll the movie back to 1963, Menzies is only one by one seat in 1961, and he plays, and I and I remember it vividly. Uh, 24 TFXs purchased by 
by Prime Minister, and he played it in that uh, election campaign he brought forward a year early, and he played the khaki election on that, and, and those planes, which we later called F-111s, that was a huge splash because they were American. Everybody thought he was going to buy British. He bought the American, the American ones, and that was all about that election. So 63, which he ran, ran in, in a landslide, was like Howard's Tampa. So if Howard was, was a great student of, of, of Menzies, and 63 is what, what, what Howard did again with Tampa. He grabbed it, he could see he could use it, and it destroyed, it destroyed the, uh, the Labor Party opposition at that stage. No, he, that was the end of Corwell. Corwell was, Corwell was history after that, and then, then well, in 66 he was history, and then Whitlam takes over. But that was the beginning of whack, he hits him with TFS. TFX. He used Menzies used exactly the same language that 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 Howard used. You know, this is this is a time you know when I'm thinking of the nation first and its security, not the fact that I'm pushing back British planes. I'm buying American planes because we need them for confrontation. Indonesians confrontation. Indonesians move into into West New Guinea. So, yeah. So I think that's when it, I think Tampa is an echo of the TFS, TFX election and, and how it did it brilliantly. Destroyed, destroyed Beasley in that campaign. And, and so coming, coming, coming to today, um, now going to do a bit of crystal ball gazing. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but it, it is, you know, I guess the, the, for want of a better word, you know, using the China scare as a leverage in the election, it is, it is, you, 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 you can understand it from a, from a, from a polling from, you know, in terms of, you know, how the both parties are viewed in terms of their strength in national security. You can see the, the strategists thinking about it. I've never been a strategist. You have, um, you can see that the, the thinking behind it. Sure. Um, but how, if firstly, how, how dangerous do you think it really is? Because there's a lot of media commentary and, and, and also surprisingly, I guess, from the intelligence uh, agencies a couple of weeks ago. And how, how do you, you know, how dangerous it is and how effective do you think um, is it going to be? Well, I think that, uh, I know Dennis Richardson's intervention was interesting and more interesting as serving ASIO officer, but I don't think, Foreign policy is sacrosanct. I think politicians, you know, they get in and they can go go play with it. And Morrison has clearly seen that if he has a khaki election, if he can do we're best on security, we're best on managing the economy, people may forget Hawaii, may forget not being able to get rat tests done. And and Tonight, as we all watched on television, you know, thousands of paratroopers jumping out of the air. It's the biggest thing since World War II. Oh, that's just a gift for Prime Minister Morrison, for us to think, well, you know, maybe I can, I can imagine Morrison going out and congratulating the troops. Well, I'm not so sure about Albo with that funny hat that he's got on. He looks a bit awkward. You know, so they all play that really hard. The reality is, you know, politics is about, number one, money. Uh, how much money you got to run a campaign. And second, it's about mathematics. If you look at the, the mathematics of the existing campaign, there's about seven seats that Labor has to, to pick its way through. And, and there's a pathway for that. 
and there's also a pathway for an equal pathway for liberals to get there. I this week in Sydney, I'm always bumping into people from either side. Spoke to a Labor Party guy today, and he sort of took me through his pathway, and I bumped into. I won't name them, of course. Uh, bumped into a, a liberal, a heavy liberal, on uh, Wednesday morning, and he ran me through their particular pathway. And both are logical, and it, it it's going to break down into you know, do the libs get extra seats in in Tasmania, or how many seats does Labor get in Western Australia? So I think it's like that. But we've got this huge, huge picture, and. Prime Minister Morris's team are really, they're a tough group of people. You know, there's not much blood in their veins, but you don't need it if you're a strategist. And they would just be looking that. And if people are taking a, a macro takeout, that security and the economy, let's stick with these guys, uh, that may get them through their pathway. It might. Don't bet, and, on don't, don't bet your house on it just yet, but I'd, I'd say it's, um, it's in train. But tonight... There'll be big smiles on faces of people uh, in liberal strategists. And and is it is it if you're inside, you know, the decision making circles and that strategy, you're thinking, right, okay, this 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 noise and or, or this this argument around, look, it should be bipartisan, it's sacrosanct, it's this. Is it just a cold calculation? It's just this is a means to an end. It needs to be done. You know, yeah. we'll 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 once you know if we win the election, we'll we'll go back to status quo ante and we'll work it out. Is is that the sort of? Am I correct? I, I, I always think bipartisan foreign policy is a con job by the opposition because they, you're short of money, and you know you can't win. So let's park it and call it bipartisan. So it's not this big sacrosanct thing that that's just got to stay there. It can be it can be used. It can be used because they can change their mind. Menzies can do TFX. Uh, Howard can do Tampa. Uh, Morrison's got, hey, he's got China, and now he's got Russia. Man, how cool is that? Mm -hmm. I mean, next minute we'll have some other invasion on and they'll be home in a landslide. So for them, it's, it doesn't mean they don't have great diplomats. It doesn't mean they'll be a terrific, they won't be a terrific foreign minister, and I think Wong would be great, and I'm sure uh, Marisa would be great continuing on. But it's, it's sort of there, but these cats want to win. I mean, I've never had any of them, if you say to them, what are your priorities? It, it isn't, oh, I want to have a really a balanced uh, foreign policy. Am I going to make an outreach in, uh, in, in the Indo-Pacific? No, it's not. It's, I want to win. And how do I win? Um, and that's what's happening now. They're putting that, they're looking at all that macro thing. They'll be polling like crazy now. Uh, where does the Prime Minister get to? Labor Party people think they're going to win. They're quite confident. Libs are more, we have a pathway to get there. And I think they're both being honest. Um, I've got a few more minutes before I de delve deeper into sure. the question. Um, um, I guess if I don't get to this question, I'm going to ask it now because yeah. I think this is important. Um, um, I'm not sure how many young people we have in the in the in the kind of the audience now but um you know we in the AIA uh, do provide a space for young people who have aspirations for international careers or careers in international relations um and um and and you know we have a good representation of this demographic at our events normally and 
and you know, in, in other branches in the country, they have, you know, they 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 do uh, like ourselves also do outreach to to this group. Um, you know, you've had you've had this career that's interacted with international relations and domestic politics and consulting. Um, you know, what 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 are the three things you you will you 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 might share on reflecting on on your on your career? I think uh, foreign affairs is one of the best finishing schools that exist. If people can apply and get into foreign or into DFAT as it is now, it gives them rigor in thinking. Uh, your mind's challenged every day by by your peer group, but it's not necessarily a career that has to be forty years. It's a skill set that's given that can then be picked up and taken elsewhere. It can be taken into the into the private sector. It could be taken into into academia, and I think it's 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 fantastic. But the the young people of today don't think like my generation, where you sort of you're one thing and then you you keep doing that. They're all about change. They're all about doing five or six or seven or eight careers. Now I'm I've had several careers, um, but they all have that. But I I think for, I think foreign policy is terrific. Uh, is a terrific area where if they have the opportunity to get into DFAT, it'll train them for so many opportunities through, th through life. It's just the best. Uh, it's, it just gives you that rigor. And the thing that I like about it is that it makes people empathetic. They, you learn to lower your own ego and you put yourself in somebody else's world and that somebody else might be your boss, but that's you get in his or her head and I think that's a terrific skill set. I mean, I think empathy is a is a really great thing to have. And by playing in the, in the space of diplomacy, that's what you learn. That's that's what you take with you uh, to your grave. Is that ability that of of being able to demonstrate empathy, which foreign gives you. I mean, I'd I'd second that. I mean, this this interview is about you, but I'll, you know, if I could put in my two cents worth, uh, go for it. Uh, go for it. <laughs> it, it, you know, in a similar way, I feel very strongly that you know um, it is it is um, a fantastic opportunity, and I you know I think both of us feel um, very uh, lucky to have been given that opportunity. Uh, and I think that the only other, I guess, thing that I see nowadays uh, uh, that you don't have to be in foreign affairs to have that experience because of how for want of a better word, foreign policy has become more democratic through various other organizations. But I think that exposure to that foreign policy and uh, analysis of international affairs, I think is, I 100% agree with you. It gives you a deeper knowledge of, um, you know, how the world works. And I think it automatically ends up making you a better analyst of your own country. Absolutely. And, and how and how, you know, uh, and that's been a bit my journey from trying to analyze how politics works in Indonesia and France and whatnot. And coming back to Australia, you see it through a more rigorous lens and, 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 and a comparative lens, which not a lot of people have the opportunity. But you don't have to do it through DFAT is my point. I guess you get other opportunities to do that because, you know, not yeah, everyone is. We don't have, we're not like America where you've got this great Eastern Seaboard uh, intellectual foreign affairs loving group of people that are so identified and, and so obvious and a lot of them. But if you can grab a little bit of that, I think it's a terrific thing to have.
Excellent. I'll I'll go to the questions now. So I've got three sure. here. Please, uh, please, others uh, come through. Um, um, and I'll I'll start with um, uh, with the first one. I'll just go um, in chronological order. Um, and this is a very very topical, putting you on the spot a bit, uh, Court. Um, sure. It comes from uh, from one of the audience members, Fiona. Hello, Ian. Thank you for presenting tonight. What would you advise the Prime Minister? Uh, how what would you advise prime, the Prime Minister and the Cabinet to consider uh, as of international importance in the next 48 hours, given what's happening? Well, knowing them so well, what they're considering tomorrow morning at about six o'clock is Crosby, Texas polling uh, as to where, where people are thinking. Because as we sit here right now, right across Australia, the Liberal Party is paying for focus groups, I'm sure, and they'll get a read of it in the mo tomorrow. Now, if there's been a move in that, you'll find the Prime Minister's language will, will, will stiffen up on this. But I think he'll have his suit on. You won't see him wearing high-vis for a while. You'll have him in a suit and a tie. Uh, he'll be doing all those sorts of things. So goodbye, baking fish. Uh, get rid of that, mate, and just focus on, focus on, you know, I'm the leader. I'm the sort of person that can, can lead you through that. And I think that's what they're doing now. Uh, oh, well, I'm, I'm sure they are. And uh, Labor Party will be doing the same things and Albo will be getting the results tomorrow morning at seven. Uh, and they'll be saying, well, mate, this is cutting, cutting through. You've really got to do it, but maybe you should have a bit more Wong. Let's get, let's get Penny up quite a bit because she's quite strong. So we'll, we'll start playing her with you. Let's, let's appear with her where she's in Melbourne and Sydney could you get yourself to Sydney. And you'll see that sort of strength coming through. So they start to present an, an equal, credible uh, foreign uh, policy team. And that's what I'd have them doing. So if I was working for either side, and, and, and today, in fact, I got rung by both sides, um, just, just for my opinion. And, and that's what the, I'm sure that's where, where they're heading now. But I don't know what the polling, none of us know, but right tonight, um, uh, that's precisely what they're doing. So for the question, I'd say that's what I'd, I'd be doing because it's, 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 it's a political thing. Now, all he's got to do is if he's, bi if he's sort of nonpartisan as a prime minister and he's an international statesman, he just keeps saying what he's saying. And, but you're led by Biden. I mean, the restrictions that we can do on, um, on Russia aren't going to make Putin lose any sleep at all. But you've got to keep mouthing it and if you can stop a few things and stop a few, stop a few bank accounts or whatever we're doing or cyber attacks, you've got to do it because you've got to look like it. I mean, you know, we're in the quad, oh, we're in orchestra, we're all these things, so we've got equal status and those, so you just play to that. But keep the suit on, mate, keep the tie on, no more high-vis, keep the fish away. Do not make a curry. That's what we're saying <laughs> right now. We don't, we don't, we need no more curries. <laughs> Thank you. I'll move on to Matt's question. And, and this is, this, you, you, you would have, you'd be familiar with this question as well. Um, Matt asked, Scott Morrison used a Manchurian candidate to accuse the opposition deputy leader in parliament. We heard news of a laser hit by Chinese warships last, a Chinese warship last week. Do you agree that China will be the hot topic this election year? If so, shall 1.5 million Chinese heritage, people of Chinese heritage living in Australia worry about possibly increasing hostility towards them here? 
what does Australian domestic politics, uh, what can Australian dom domestic politics do to avoid divisions in our multicultural democracy? If you go back to uh, 1988, when Howard made his sort of anti-Asian immigration st statement, the, uh, at the state level, Kennett missed out to Kane because all the ethnic voters um, went against the Liberals. That'll motivate them more than what's in their heart. I think it's dreadful that we should that we should even consider it. Where I stay in Sydney, you know, outside here now, um, I'm near Chinatown, and you know, I didn't. They look happy, and and you. Why can we? Why should we victimise them because they happen to be Chinese? If you go up to Benelong, it's it's, it's a very strong uh, Chinese electorate. I think we we do these things at at our peril, but to my Chinese friends, just get it that all of us don't think like that about them at all. And this is this is a political game. And I think they're pragmatic enough. A lot of them just think, okay, that's fine. It's just it's just election talk. You know, we need China forever. Um, these things will play out. I think the big thing that comes out of this is does Xi, because of have a look at this, have a go at Taiwan, and then we're in serious business because the Americans have got a different commitment to Taiwan than they had to Ukraine. Ukraine, they said, we're not going to put any Americans in there. Get the diplomats out. You know, we're not definitely not going to put anything in there, says Biden, but no, all the language on Taiwan is very, very different. And now you've proved if you get the troops in quickly and you move fast, you can knock these places off really quickly. So I think that's the that is the danger. Then it may be more difficult for our Australian Chinese colleagues. I should call them Chinese Australian colleagues. I mean, they're they're us. They're Australians. But I think if Xi moved on Taiwan, then we're then we're in a different area. And then Morrison wins, hands down. So Going back again to your background and your 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 insider view, so I guess that's a calculation that yep. they will play out. Um, they know that I mean it's the Chinese community is speaking out. I mean even yep. here in 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 Perth, um, you, I, I hear it from you know from the Chinese community, but across the country, they, it, it, you know they they are so data focused. Uh, today in, in the world of politics, they will know that this is reverberating in this particular way. It's having this this echo. Um, the the Chinese Australian community is not happy um, um, by and large. I mean, I guess there's a lot of diversity of views. I, I don't want to say yeah. it's a monolithic, um, uh, you know, kind of community and views, but you hear a lot of this. Uh, and I guess from, from that very pure political calculation, they're taking this into account, they're going on the balance of things, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're taking this into account, and then if they go forward, if they ramp it up, they know this is going to come up, but they, I guess they believe that they can, they, they can deal with it, they can manage it um, in, in, in the long game. Yeah, sure. Well, but it's a big, it's a big risk, and and I think, but we're in a khaki election, big time. This is the biggest khaki election I think since you know Billy Hughes, you know, <laughs> I think, and 1963. This is this is a full on, this is a full on security just has moved up enormously in people's minds. There'll be nobody that's, 
I mean, the gentleman who helped me tonight putting all the bits and pieces for this uh, webinar showed me the thousands of paratroopers falling out of the sky. I mean, that is serious stuff. That's, mm. that's scary stuff. We haven't seen that since, you know, D-Day. So another question, the next question um, uh, from Sophie, um, she asked, it's related to what we've just talked about. What is your thought on Russian and Chinese threat today, the real Chinese threat? How will domestic policy influence response of leaders to Russian, how, I guess, sorry, I'll have to rephrase the question a, a little bit. How, I think the questioner is trying to ask, what is the impact of Russian aggression in the domestic political sphere? I'm, I'm putting two words, I'm interpreting what your question is, Sophie, if you want to, to, to make it clearer, please go ahead. But I think, I think you've answered that. Yeah, I um, think, I think, Sophie, I think, I, I think it's up, the, I think it's up there now. And, and, but it, you know, this election, you know, obviously, security is going to be number one. Uh, and then you've got, you know, the economy number two. And the number three, which used to be number one is how, how is Morrison handled his job for the last you know, 18 months or so. And, but, you know, the election's going to be, what, you know, 14th of May or 21st of May. There's, there's a bit of space. But, you know, I can hear the dry cleaners really working hard on ScoMo's suits because he's just going to stay in them and he's going to play this one so strongly, Sophie, that, you know, we're going to believe it, that it's really something. And, you know, unfortunately, there are people dying right now in the Ukraine and we're going to see that on television if we're not seeing it already as we sit here doing this. Um, I think people are going to default to, to a secure position. They're going to default to father figures. They're going to default to what they know. Doesn't mean Albo can't win. Of course he can still win. Um, in many ways, this is a driver's dog election, but uh, this thing is changing it. I mean, we would be daft to think that tonight isn't a huge night. It is a huge night, not because we're, because not because uh, Brendan not and because I are having, having a fireside chat. What's happening outside is really important for Australia, and 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 what it's going to how what, how Australians are thinking tonight. And and I guess the 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 point that you made about how this plays out in taiwan you know brings it back not only from a global scale the difference in us policy but also it brings it much closer to home and it mm. it immediately interacts with 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 china uh, which is you know which is the the main well, you know what? China is China is already a proxy winner out of out of what's happening in with the Russians. They actually don't have to do Taiwan because we now know that they could do it. So it's like a deterrent strategy. They have now got a really terrific card to play, and they haven't had to burn any av tour or av gas or anybody be injured because what Putin's done in our minds. If you're a foreign policy person or a na national strategy person, you're saying, you know, that's what can happen. So China doesn't have to do anything anymore. 
they've just got to you know, seal it, get on with what you're doing, you know, make more chips, make more money, uh, get a bit more iron ore, a bit more whatever you want to do, because we now know that it's highly likely, well, we know that they could do it, they could, they could achieve it. And will America move against them in that? Will America risk you know, a nuclear war over Taiwan? I um, don't know. The big winner out of this also is, is Biden. I think Biden's gone from being, you know, Mr. Zero from being Mr. Hero. He's handled this thing quite well. He's told us all over the last six days what's going to happen. He's gone tough. He's moved quickly. Uh, he's looked decisive. Don't know if he'll save the Democrats in the half-term elections, but he sure as sugar he looks better than he did. And no one's talking about him, about, you know, dementia or slowing down he's handled this pretty well so i think that group of people uh blinken and all that he's gathered around him they've done very well out of this and i think uh, biden's look quite quite strong oh no not quite strong very strong um i've got another question i'll probably be the last one we've got 10 minutes to go it's it's, it's an old chestnut um and you would have heard it you know um Again, I think you have a you'll have a you'll have a particular perspective, having been both in politics and in in the foreign policy establishment. One of the recurring, I guess, complaints among the foreign policy types and foreign policy thinkers and advocates is how little um, Australia puts, how little investment Australia puts from a dollar perspective, from our network of uh, diplomatic missions. And then when it's compared with, um, I guess, the pull of the defense spend, um, it's, 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 you know, along many, many indices and comparative compared to other OECD. Many studies around that even, you know, even, you know, backbenchers like Dave Sharma has talked about it. Um, I know, uh, you know, people, you know, on both sides of politics have talked about it. But do you see, and part of that is, the domestic constituency for for foreign affairs and and for an Australian uh, sort of strategic diplomatic presence and activity. Um, if you if you if you if you were if you were in front of the Secretary of Foreign Affairs and Trade today to say how is she going to get her budget up? How she's going to convince the ERC? You know how 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 to get her hands on more resources? What, yeah. how would you do it? I think you could put a line item in, 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 in the sort of the budget on, on March the 29th and you could double, double the spend for DFAT and I don't think anybody would blink an eye and they should run for it because right now people have seen the strength of the American diplomatic move and coordinating the rest of the world and that and people like that. Yes, of course he's gone, he's gone ahead and done it but it showed it is a skill set uh, it can be required, but for that, you've got to staff. I don't think Labor, you know, if Labor came in, you know, they'd have no problem increasing it. But I even think from the conservative side of politics, and they're the ones that normally cut in this space, because, you know, they, they just hate multilateral. I don't know why, they just do. Um, but I think now it's a great chance for, you know, the heads of, head of DFAT and people in that area to argue for an increase in their that area. They're not people running around the world going to cocktail parties. They're people right now trying to use language and, and contacts uh, to try and ameliorate these things. And I, I think now is the time to move that. And there would not be a there would not be a murmur 
from the electorate that if they made a big increase in that space. We've already gone a long way on our defence spend, and I think we should have the people in there to do it. Because as you and I said, you know, it's a great thing to get into, but at the moment, you know, not many people get into it every year and we need more. And we're going to have bigger buildings and bigger places. And we, and I, I think now is the time to, to, to run for it. I don't know what the federal, what Josh Frydenberg thinks of matters policy, but he's a, he's a guy who's sophisticated. He, um, he lives in a community. He worked in, he worked in foreign affairs. He worked in Alexander Donner's office yeah, for many years. Absolutely. So he's the sort of guy I think that should, you know, go talk to, yeah, okay, let's up the defence a bit more, but let's put a line item in, you know, doubling, doubling DFAT's thing in an area, particularly in recruitment and things of that nature and training and broadening our missions out because then we, it's, you know, you're a lot more, you're seen as a much more mature country if you've got a very effective diplomatic service. Now, I was around in 75 when, when, uh, when Fraser sort of, Put a knife through foreign affairs and you went from being promoted from sort of third sec to first second four and a half years to a bit being about 11 years why because there were no 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 nobody was around anymore so i think now's the time to do it because it is a really nice thing to have and i think people are comfortable about it and even traveling australians if they only see the people on the consular side they'll feel quite comfort comforted by that and a lot of australians over the last two years have dealt with dfat as they repatriated either well or badly, but people understand the role that they play. So now's the time to go for it. You know, if we can go and drop, you know, 60 billion to JobKeeper and JobSeeker and and what have you, we can certainly put a lazy bill into um, into DFAT. That's a fantastic note to end. Um, I hope, uh, and I'll I'll send the recording to, to some of our former DFAT colleagues and, uh, and we'll get uh, maybe a maybe a, a bit of advocacy going. I think I think you're right in you know, the sense of timing um, from your political background uh, is 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 really interesting because you got to hit when 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 you've got you've you've got the opportunity I guess um, and now's the opportunity. Sure. Definitely. We're coming uh, to our end. Uh, it's been a fascinating uh, session for me. Uh, I hope um, uh, you in the audience, uh, uh, in your lounge rooms, hopefully comfortable and maybe having a drink in your hand at this time of the night, if you're on the East Coast or had something to eat for dinner. Um, uh, it's been fascinating for me as well to have Ian Cortland Court, as we all know him, as, uh, as our guest. Um, and uh, fascinating um, anecdotes and sharing of experience. I hope um, we have another opportunity to do it uh, next time in live or in a round table or something as we keep this discussion because uh, court you've had a you 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 along with um, many people who still are involved in the AWIA in a Sue Boyd and her book last year it was absolutely fascinating to to hear her journey. Uh, in fact, that inspired me to to talk uh, to to think about this as well. You know, the stories, um, the experiences, the the arc of one's career across you know various political systems and political leaders. Um, for you know somebody like for practitioners or uh, just people who love foreign policy and international relations, I think it's a fascinating insight um, and uh, very enriching for all of us. So uh, I'd like to. 
thank you. And and I know it's very late in Sydney and, and thank you for your flexibility, notwithstanding your need to uh, jump on a plane and get on the other side of the country. Uh, you've made a lot of arrangements to, to, to be here and to be with us tonight. And uh, I thank you very much and the members and guests, thank you. Well, and thank thank you, Brendan, for giving me, giving me this opportunity to, to to have a fireside chat. I think it's a nice way to do it. You know, set set piece spe set piece speeches just don't do it do it justice. And it's very it was great uh, discoursing with you. Thank you. Thank you, and safe travels. Uh, I guess uh, you you won't need to quarantine when you come back next week. Um, um, and uh, we'll see you back here in Perth. I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you to Ash, uh, who produced this. And on your side, I think Will helped you over there. Um, and, and thank the members and guests for being flexible as well, because we changed it from a, from a live in-person event to this. Thank you, and have a good evening.